0: culture is absolutely obsessed with uh, scandals. It uh, often produces a smorgasbord of thoughts and feelings that we are addicted to, judgment, self-righteousness, outrage, and a lot of times we we find entertainment in scandal as well. Uh, go to Coburn's today after church, and, and if you do, you just look over to the side of the cash register, and and you're going to find all sorts of magazines that are dedicated to providing you with the latest juicy gossip of the scandals of Hollywood, or maybe in politics, or uh, increasingly even in uh, in the royal family. And there is something that's just intriguing about them. You can't uh, help but feel a little bit better about yourself. Unfortunately, when you see someone like, like Tiger Woods, who, who had it all, a beautiful family, and then made shipwreck of it all. You can't help but wag your head when you see on the internet that Britney Spears is embattled in a war against her own father for her own worth. And, and I wish that these scandals were unique only to the world and not present within the church. Unfortunately, there isn't a week that goes by. And I mean that literally, by which I don't get uh, an email about the latest celebrity pastor who is no longer in ministry because of a moral failure or some scandal that they are involved in. I could rattle off name after name after name of of pastors that, that you have heard about, books that you have read. And teachings that you have listened to that are now disqualified because of uh, because of a scandal we love scandals and can I just be honest for just a moment there are a few scandals that we are genuinely shocked over maybe we mourn over maybe uh if we could be completely candid that we'd have to admit that we're somewhat uh excited about over scandals it's why the national Enquirer still has a, a cult-like following it's why shows like access hollywood are still on i can look myself in the mirror and feel pretty good Knowing that I've never had an affair, never done drugs, never gotten a DUI, unlike these tabloids that I see. And then we come to a text like Genesis chapter 38. It's a PG-13 kind of text and it really seems quite out of place. Genesis 37 began the the story of of, uh, Joseph, who throughout history, uh, throughout his story, seems saintly. He's obedient. He was patient. He was kind. He was gracious. He was not vengeful. He's the kind of character that we look at in Scripture and we say, man, I want to be like Joseph. I want to be a man who loves God and perseveres faithfully through incredible difficulties. And sandwiched in the story of Joseph is the sideshow of Genesis 38. It is the backstory of Judah, who was the fourth son of Leah, one of Jacob's wives. And Judah was often at the, the, the forefront of the uh, dysfunctional family of Jacob. And the order placement seems to make absolutely no sense. Why would Moses, the author of Genesis have put this story in the middle of Joseph's story? Wouldn't it have made more sense to put it at the beginning of Joseph's story? Or or maybe even at the end? Or possibly not even at all? And the answer to that has everything to do with our obsession with scandal of others while being completely blind to the scandal of our own lives. And it has everything to do with God's amazing grace in the midst of the messiness of our own lives. There are two things that I want to look at today. And the first is is that you and I need to realize and we need to come to grips with the fact that we are capable, every single one of us, of grievous sin, In every large family, there always seems to be the one ringleader of the circus. And in Jacob's family, it is definitely Judah. After all, uh, it was his idea to maybe not kill Judah, but why why don't we sell him into slavery? That way we can make a profit and we can rid him of our problem. However, a, a person's degradation isn't something that happens overnight. It is something that happens slowly over time, little decision after little decision after little decision until the weights just tip so much that we fall into scandal. Not only was he the mastermind of the sale of Joseph, but verse 1 shows us that his backstory begins when when he decided to uh, turn from the land of God's promise and marry a woman from a forbidden culture. His wife, Shua, was a Canaanite. In verses 3 through 5, it tells us that he and Shua had three uh, three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shalah. Judah spent consider- a considerable time away from the land of his father because uh, there, had, uh, there had been long enough for his oldest boy, Ur, to find a wife named Tamar. Now, we don't have the luxury of the details here, but verse 7 tells us, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. This is the first time, well, it's the second time in all of Genesis that we see the Lord putting someone to death intentionally because of their sin. The first one was the entire creation in the Noahic flood. So who knows what was going on here, but obviously it was something serious. Now there was this practice in uh, in the ancient Near East that ended up getting adopted into the Israelite law called the Levrite marriage law. And it was created to protect the inheritance of the oldest son. If he died without an heir, then it was the duty of the next brother to marry the, the widow of his brother in order to raise up offspring that would hold on to his inheritance. Now, obviously, if you were a younger brother in the ancient Near East, uh, you would want to scope out who your older brother was marrying. <laughs> you want to make sure that she was a quality gal, right? Because in a time like that, there's a pretty good chance that unless you end up getting hitched, that you're, you may end up with this, uh, with this woman. So you want to make sure that she's quality. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 8 judah calls up onan and he says hey guess what you're getting married and the text is shockingly graphic in detailing onan's wickedness he doesn't want to fulfill his duties as a brother but rather he is more enticed by fulfilling his own sexual appetite So before the act of sexual relations is complete, the text tells us that he he withdraws and spills his seed on the ground in order to avoid pregnancy. Therefore, in verse 10, it says, And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So Judah now has two sons, both of which had married the same girl, and both who are now dead. He's got a third son, but what do you think is running through Judah's head at this point? And this girl's like Scott Peterson, or Drew Peterson. It's that cop that had four wives that they all either were murdered or dis- disappeared. This, this woman is trouble. We need to get rid of this woman. She's bad news. She's got to go. But hey, you know what? He's actually stuck with her. So in verse 10, I'm sorry. Verse eleven, he convinces her to go back to her father's house and wait until Sheila is uh, is uh, old enough to marry her and carry on. But uh, Judah never had any intention of giving Sheila to Tamar because losing two sons is hard enough, but a third he can't bear it. Well, time goes by, and, and, and Sheila here, uh, he comes of age, and, and Tamar hasn't gotten the call yet. And Judah's wife, Shua, she ends up uh, passing away. And, and Judah seemingly goes on with life, and, and we get a glimpse of his character in verse 12. He goes to, to shear his sheep in a, in a far off land. And in, uh, in Timnon, which is uh, going to shear your sheep, is sort of like college kids going off to spring break, it's party time. This is where all the wild stuff happened when the people, the shepherds go out and they're unrestricted here. There's a constant party and, and Tamar now, she gets, she gets wind of this. And now in verse 14 and following really shows the depths of depravity of this story. Verse 14, and when Tamar was told your, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she hadn't been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, well, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her. And she conceived by him. And she arose and went away. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when, uh, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge from the widow's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who is at, at the at the roadside? And they said, no, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Well, let her keep the things of her uh, as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you didn't find her. Well, three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. And he did not know her again. You read this text, and you, you kind of feel icky. It's like we just watched an episode of Maury Povich or Jerry Springer. There's death, and there's deceit, and there's prostitution, and illegitimate pregnancy, and cover up and exposure. But can I be candid for just a moment here? And let me suggest that this is not just a story that would grace the cover of a magazine over at Coburn's. This is you and me that is being described here. Judah's backstory is a commentary and it's a warning. It is placed within the context of Joseph's story because far too often we want to be the Joseph in the story and we ignore the fact that we are more like Judah than we want to admit. We desperately want to be the hero. Or maybe we already think that we are the hero. We're the good guys. Joseph had so many good qualities about him. But when it comes to the scandal of sin, we have enough in our uh, backstory to cover U.S. Weekly. We just don't have the fame. I had the privilege of spending my childhood and my teen years in the '80s and '90s, and of all the advantages that I had growing up those years, one of them was be able to watch the golden age of basketball. Am I right, Jonathan? Oh, Saturday mornings! I'd turn on NBA on NBC, and you would watch Sean Kemp and Gary and Gary Payton, and you, you would also, you know, see uh, people like uh, Reggie Miller and Hakeem Olajuwon. That would Oh, it'd be like watching a work of art on the screen. But none of them compared to Michael Jordan. Man, no one could touch Jordan, right? He dominated the court. And even more so, he dominated the endorsements. His most famous endorsement wasn't his own sneakers, and it certainly wasn't Hanes underwear. His most famous endorsement to us kids was Gatorade. Because as you'd be watching the Saturday morning, even the cartoons on Saturday morning, you'd see the kids on the commercial playing out, uh, playing uh, pickup games or ghetto ball or whatever you want to call it, and all of a sudden you'd hear that song that all of us remember. Sometimes I dream that he is me, you know. Sometimes that's who I want to be, like Mike. Uh, if I could be like Mike, and you have that 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 one girl in the background saying, "I wanna be, I wanna be like Mike." Any of you remember that? Oh, it was great. Everyone wanted to be like Mike. Of course, the, of course, the catch of that commercial was if you want to be like Mike, all you need to do is drink some Gatorade. I mean, that would magically give your vertical a little bit of a lift. But even as children, we knew eh, there ain't no way that we're going to be like Mike. Even today, no one can come even close to his talent. And don't even dare come to me and tell me that Kobe Bryant or LeBron James have been better. They're not. You can't beat him. But if we looked more closely at the person, we wouldn't be singing, I want to be like Mike. It didn't take long for him to be outed as a gambling addict, losing millions of dollars and putting his life and his family's life in jeopardy. He's known as a womanizer after 17 years of marriage and three children in a $168 million settlement, which is the largest divorce settlement still in history. He was single-handedly responsible for not allowing Isaiah Thomas to play in the 1992 Olympic Games simply because he didn't like him. And probably the most tragic of all was watching his acceptance speech into the NBA Hall of Fame, throwing his kids under the bus and telling them publicly that they'd never be what he is. I would love to be like Mike. I'd love to have a vertical like that guy had. I'd love to have his shooting ability. I would love to have his retirement package. But I know what I've done. I know what I've thought. I know what I've said. I know what I'm capable of. I don't have to dream to be like Mike because I already am like him. And sometimes I need someone like Tamar to open up my eyes. And as much as I wish it weren't true, I am Michael Jordan, capable of greatness. But far too often, I'm much more like Judah. And you are too. This tragic and sick story is meant to expose our own hearts. But it's also written to point us to redemption. And that's our second and last point today. Is that we need to receive the hope of Jesus Christ. We need to receive the hope in Jesus Christ. You know, Disney Plus is a streaming service offered by Disney, and it sort of defied all of the, uh, the critics' uh, uh, criticisms when it first started. When the plans for Disney Plus were released, I mean, everybody said, this is going to be a failure. It's not going to be uh, profitable. It's not going to be sustainable. It couldn't possibly go toe-to-toe with Netflix. But then a, a year and a half later, here we are, and uh, Disney has proven to be for, uh, formidable with their Disney Plus. They've had quality original content, and the fact that you can access any classic Disney movie or or Pixar movie or uh, National Geographic show at any time is, is super cool, even for us adults. But I'm convinced that Disney Plus is doing so well because it has the market on heroes. Every single one of us loves a story of a hero who Fights against evil, against amazing odds, or we love the story about the average person who has an above-average character and fights against all of the uh, the personal uh, upheavals that they may have to go against. From Star Wars to the Avengers franchise, these stories are they're captivating and they're inspiring and they're they're encouraging. Now I'm going to go against a few commentators here on Genesis 38. Genesis 38 isn't Disney Plus. There aren't any heroes in this story. It's a tragic story. Judah is a dirtbag who seems to have an insatiable sexual appetite. Tamar truly is a victim. We need to recognize that. But sometimes even when we are sinned against or victimized, we respond in sinful ways. And what we're left with here is a sort of incestual pregnancy, but somehow God is working. You see, there's no hero in these people, because the hero in this story is God. And we see him as the hero in what transpires later. Later in Genesis, when Jacob is on his deathbed and is dishing out the blessings for his sons, one in particular sticks out. uh, It's a blessing and a prophecy that one of these children of his 12 are going to be the father of the line by which the promised seed of Eve would one day come. That one day, the offspring of one of these children is going to be the one who comes and crushes the head of the serpent. And if we were to choose which son that would be, hands down, we would choose Joseph. Because he's the good one. He's the good boy. He's a servant. He's a savior. But it's not Joseph that he honors and shows this favor coming to. It's Judah. Look in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Judah, by the way, means praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So for all of his sins and all of his perversions and for all of his crimes against Joseph and Tamar and even his youngest son, Shelah, God is sovereignly choosing to bring about his plan for his people through Judah. And specifically through the sinful sexual act that occurred between him and Tamar. Now verses 27 through 30 document the strange birth of Judah and Tamar's children. There were twins inside of her and when the first one was, was coming out, his hand came out and the, the midwife tied a, a red cord around his hand and that primarily was for the purpose of once both the twins were out and they were being cared for that they would be able to distinguish which one is which. But then of in defiance of all logic, and all biology, the firstborn pulls his arm back, goes back into the womb, and the second ends up being born first. They name him Perez, which means breach, or burst forth. And it's a good name for him because even though he would continue uh, the pattern in Genesis in which the uh, God favors the younger rather than the older, which was contrary to, to cultural customs, it's really symbolic of what God was doing. In Perez's birth to Judah and Tamar, God was breaching. He was breaking through his plan of salvation for his people. Because Perez, his name appears in the genealogy in Ruth. Look in Ruth chapter 4. Now, all these generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered uh, Salmon. I think it's Solomon, but I like saying Salmon better. Uh, salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse, father David. So here we see 10 generations uh, going from, uh, from Perez to David, who was the greatest king that Israel had ever seen and ever would see in, uh, in their, their monarch. But Perez's birth wasn't specifically only to bring about King David, who would reign over Israel, but rather he is ultimately pointing to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Indeed, those, all these names show up in Matthew chapter 1. And most surprisingly, in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, there are four women that show up. And first is Tamar. Look in Matthew chapter, chapter 1 with me. And Judah the father, uh, this is uh, verse 3, and Judah the father of Perez and, and uh, Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, And Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now looking in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So get the significance of what is in the seemingly boring list of names. And what it is highlighting. Tamar, uh, these four women in this genealogy were highlighted. And they were all foreigners. They were not part of the Hebrew clan. All four of them had scandalous marriage uh, stories to them. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute in order to get impregnated by her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth spent the night at Boaz's feet, which would have raised a lot of eyebrows. The wife of Uriah was Bathsheba, who had an affair with David, and David ended up killing her husband in order to cover up their scandal. And all of these terrible acts by these men and women flow from the family line of Judah. But this would be the bloodline of our Savior. Our Lord Jesus Christ would be born into this family. And what that means for us is that we have a Savior who comes from people like you and comes from people like me. People who have very public and also very private scandals because of our poor decisions and circumstances. He comes from a line of people with bad reputations, guilty consciences, leave a trail of destruction in their relationships. He comes from people who are broken, needy, and desperate for redemption and change. He comes from people like us, yet he is not like us. He is God eternal who took on flesh, lived a sinless life, and was crucified and buried for us. In his baptism, he identified with sinners like you and like me and like Judah and like Tamar. In his life, He lived perfectly in our stead in his death. He took on the punishment that we deserved perfectly in our stead. On the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God for every careless word, thought, and deed that we have ever committed. In rising from the dead three days later, he proved that he was the man for the job. That he had achieved victory over sin and death once and for all. You see, every one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we love a good scandal, unless we're involved in it. Sure, it might be fun, and it might be exciting when the curtain is closed, but there's coming a day when our signet And our cord and our staff is going to be presented. And the question is going to be asked, whom do these belong to? And the curtain will open up and we will be without excuse. It will be then that we ought to take heart that Jesus did not descend from Joseph, but from Judah. It's then that we can be confident that Jesus does not save us by the good that is in us. If that were so, we would all be doomed. Jesus saved us by taking our scandal upon himself, our corruption upon himself, our failures in our lives upon himself. He takes upon His cross, the sin of Judah, and on his cross, he takes the sin of you, and he takes the sin of me. Jesus doesn't identify with Joseph, he identifies with us. And because of that, we can be confident, even in the midst of our chaotic lives, that Jesus is taking our pain and taking our confusion our sins and failures and using them to accomplish his plan of salvation in us and in the world. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information about our church, you can find us on the web at www.emmanuelmora.com or on Facebook by searching for Emmanuel Mora. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to partner with us in our mission, consider giving financially to our ministry. You can conveniently give right from your mobile device by texting any word to 320-313-1950. There are options for one-time giving or recurring gifts on a schedule that you set. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Mora, Knowing Christ and Making Him Know